Mark 9, 1 through 13. Uh, there are certain scriptures in the uh, Revised Common Lectionary that just show up every year. Um, and this is one of them. And I uh, have to say that as soon as I saw it, I went, uh, <laughs> I know. I, okay, listen, you probably don't want to hear that from the preacher, that a piece of scripture showed up and you went, oh, this. There are certain passages in the Bible that we have become so familiar with. I, I look at it sometimes and I go, what am I supposed to do with this? Everybody already knows this. And so the beauty is that God doesn't ask me to preach uh, on a Sunday afternoon or a Monday afternoon or even a Tuesday. He says, wait till Sunday and you'll, it, it, it'll make itself clear. So hopefully we'll have a different take, a little bit different take on today's scripture. So Mark 9 verses, uh, actually verses uh, 2 through uh, 13. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, uh, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared uh, to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents for you, one for Moses, uh, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they, saw, uh, they no longer saw anyone uh, with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising of the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say the first Elijah must come? And then he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and, that is, uh, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is God's word. If I ask you today, uh, what is your uh, what's your favorite Jesus? And that may sound a little odd, but we all have this idea of who Jesus is, and we have, we uh, probably have affinity with one of his aspects um, uh, it, it, that we uh, have read. Some of us, on one hand, are like, well, we really like, uh, we like angry Jesus who tosses tables and upsets the social order. We like that Jesus. We like social activist Jesus. Oh, but we like healer Jesus. You know, the one who goes and touches lepers and, and heals the sick and, and uh, cleanses them and, and uh, the, you know, fixes the blind people. We like that Jesus. Uh, oh, we were like we like anti-religious Jesus. We like the one who goes in and, uh, and totally upsets that whole order. We also uh, we we like um, you know, outcast Jesus, the one who identifies with that. We like flannel board Jesus. For those of you who used to go to Sunday school way back in the day, you know I would put flannel board Jesus up there with little sheep and little children coming up to him, and everybody liked that. That was nice, calm Jesus, chill Jesus. Whatever Jesus that you identify with, uh, oftentimes we become way too familiar with him in that way. We often become so close to that particular thing that we identify with that we uh, exclude all of the other things that make Jesus who he is. And oftentimes we become a bit complacent in that. And it's into the same spirit that we find ourselves in this particular passage. Peter, James, and John go with Jesus to a high mountain and have this experience with God that would have set uh, me on the floor, you know, uh, in a fetal position. The thing that Jesus showed them 
broke their model or broke their mold of who Jesus had shown him to be all this time. In fact, he added on this layer uh, that was amazing. In this story, though, there are three things that I find that are uh, intense and amazing and I think are worth noticing. First and foremost, I notice that Jesus' relationship with Peter, James, and John is unlike any other human relationship he has. If we've looked at the Gospels, we've always noticed that there are at least three, uh, there are at least three types of people. There's the crowd that follows Jesus. These are the people on the periphery of his relationships. That he may know them and they may know him, but just on the real surface level. They know that who he kind of is, and they're on the crowd. They're on the outside circle. Then there's the 12 and the women, and they're on a much closer relationship with Jesus. They're on more of a one-on-one sort of, hey, we're with this guy, and it's, it's a pretty cool relationship. But again, it's not super deep just yet. But then there are Peter, James, and John. And all throughout the Gospels, you see that Jesus develops this tight-knit relationship with just these three and it's only these three that go with Jesus to the mountain. Jesus calls them and says, I want you to come with me. I'm going to show you something. Now, I don't know about you, but that would be a pretty interesting thing. Here's this guy who calls himself the son of God. And out of all of the 12 and the women in the crowd, he picks these three guys. And they say, I want to show you something amazing. What I find here is that, that human beings generally have the capacity for maybe two to three deep relationships Oftentimes it's a spouse, sometimes it's a best friend, uh, sometimes it's a collection of, of other people that you have affinity with, but usually, in generally speaking, it's pretty tight-knit. People who say, oh, I have 10, 20, 30 friends, maybe the most of those are acquaintances. And Jesus is no different here. Jesus is no exception. He has a deep, abiding relationship with Peter, James, and John. And so he calls them to this mountain. And when they get there, what I notice is that there's this... Uh, they experience Jesus in such a way that it deepens their knowledge and relationship with him. Now, I don't know about you, but it says here that Jesus was transfigured. I remember, this is silly, I don't know why it just popped in my brain, but I'm going to say it anyways because it's not offensive or anything. But I remember going to Stapleton Airport. This is way before DIA. And they used to have these phones, these red phones all over the thing, and they would say, so-and-so, please call this number. So you go up to the phone and pick it up and you dial. And you, there's somebody waiting for you on the, the line to take, give you a message. This is before cell phones and stuff. But I remember for some stupid reason, I heard someone say, uh, Mr. John Transfiguration, please go to a white paging phone. Mr. John Transfiguration. And I thought, whoa, that's weird. Why would somebody have that last name? Never found that out. It's a silly thing. But it's this word that pops in here and he was transfigured. The idea in here is that Jesus goes up and he stands, he's walking up to the top of the mountain and they get up there like, woo, big hike, I'm tired, okay, woo, who brought the water? And Jesus kind of turns around and suddenly like his dingy, normal, beige type clothes, I, I'm assuming beige, it's just whatever, you know, kind of dust-filled disgustingness, like if I was on a four-day backpacking trip with his other kind of dirty friends and, and suddenly his clothes become extremely white. And his face begins to shine. And he looks completely different than what he started out. It says here that he, uh, his clothes became radiantly, intensely white. And if you've done laundry ever, you know that you can't get whites the way they were before they came out of the package. They will always have some sort of weird dinge to them no matter what you do. But here it says that his clothes became in such a way that it was like 
uh, they call it a fuller, but somebody couldn't like bleach these things to be what it was, and it floored the disciples. This transfiguration basically is telling them uh, that Jesus is no mere carpenter turned rabbi. When it says his clothes were changed into this way that he himself and his appearance was totally different, his white clothes signifies royalty and divinity. His face shining actually would call back to when Moses went and spent the 40 days with God on Mount Sinai. And his face was so shiny that when he came down, he couldn't, he didn't, people were like freaked out about him. So he put a veil over his face to hide the glory of God. Well, Jesus doesn't hide his face. His face shines so brightly and, and, and yet it's not hidden. And the, and the three guys are able to experience God in such a way that they're like, whoa, what is this? It shows here that he, Jesus is the fulfillment of what Moses and Elijah were the shadow of. I also notice here that Jesus' own transformation and appearance of the cloud call back to Exodus. Remember it says in Exodus when the Israelites were traveling uh, from Egypt into the promised land that they had a, cl- a pillar of cloud by day and uh, a cloud or a pillar of fire by night. Well, we see that right here. Here comes the pillar or the cloud of day, and it encapsulates them. But in the midst of it is the light of the world, Jesus Christ standing there, face shining and clothes glowing, which is just blowing my brain, you know, how that all looks. It's almost as if Jesus in physical form is telling them that he is the illumination of God. He is the lamp of the word in human form. And when we hear the voice of God reveal that Jesus is the Son of God, basically being on the very same level as God the Father, does something to Peter, James, and John. See, Jesus reveals himself the most he had ever done so to these three men who were his closest friends. What it tells me is that their depth of relationship enabled Jesus to trust them with this knowledge. He didn't trust Judas, thankfully. He didn't trust Bartholomew or Thaddeus or any of the other disciples, not because he didn't care for them, but he didn't have the depth of relationship that he had with these three. It's important that he could trust them to keep it under wraps until the work for the cross and the shock of resurrection came to pass. So we find that there's this depth of relationship and that Jesus expands their knowledge of uh, these three uh, and, and, and helps them to understand he's, just more, he's far more than they suspected. But what I also notice here is that God's grace towards imperfect disciples is pretty amazing. We notice here, I love this line, it says, Peter said, hey, let's, great, uh, let's build some booths for you guys. Let's build some tents because this is a holy place and we definitely got to set up shop because I've got an idea of how to make some money. No, he didn't say that, but that's just kind of the, what I would do. Be like, wow, this is cool, church growth, right? Okay, let's, let's just set up that we got, we got the Elijah booth and we got the Moses booth and we can talk to him about the Ten Commandments uh, and, and talk to Elijah about you know the prophets of Baal story and we can charge a nickel and it'd be awesome. And then we have Jesus, the main show, and he come out with smoke and the, the bright face. Sounds great. What do you think, guys? Now, I don't think that Peter actually meant these things because if you notice here, what he says is that they were terrified. And if you know anything about being terrified, you know sometimes you say dumb stuff. Now, I don't know about terrified, but in emotionally compromised moments, I have said some stupid things. I have made some plans. I have made some, some pledges. I have said things that are just outlandish. Not because I truly meant them, but simply because I was scared and I didn't know what to do. But what we find here is that rather than Jesus rebuking him publicly in front of Moses and Elijah, which would have been horrible. I mean, that would just tear him down. 
Jesus doesn't say anything. He says nothing. In fact, if you go back and look in the Matthew account of this story, you find that Jesus actually comes to both Peter, James, and John, and he puts his hand on him and says, rise, let's go. Jesus uses imperfect people to bring his perfect gospel. If we look at James and John, you know what they were nicknamed? Sons of Thunder. Now, I personally would love that nickname, but that would be... But it's, it's not because it sounds awesome, but it's simply because they actually were like, well, we got all this power from the Holy Spirit now. It's pretty sweet. Jesus, can we call down fire and, and lightning and consume our enemies? These are warlords. Sons of Thunder is not meant to be, you know, something you, you tattoo on your, on your shoulder or something like that. This is kind of derogatory. It's simply saying you guys aren't peacemakers. They had a history of, of putting their foot in their mouth. But yet here's Jesus these three, here's Jesus with these three men who had been enabled to stand in the, all, the presence of Almighty God in the cloud and the transfigured Son of God and live to be near Moses and Elijah, the pillars of Judaism at that moment. Uh, they were only ever permitted to see a glimpse of God. And yet here in this moment, these three imperfect guys were able to be in God's presence by his grace. It appears that the grace of God in Jesus has enabled them to experience this wonderful revelation and live. They didn't have their stuff together. They didn't have it all right. They said things out of turn. They were works in progress, and God is like, I can work with that. So what's the point for us? Because this is where really the rubber meets the road. This is where we can read this story over and over and over again and go, oh, this story. Or we can see it for what I think God is talking to us about. I think oftentimes scripture is like a diamond. And if you look at it, you go, okay. But you, if you continually turn it around and you see different aspects of it, you see the cut, you see the, the quality, the clarity. If I can remember all the C's from having to buy an engagement ring from my wife 20 gajillion years ago, I don't know. But here's what I would say, that this story to me tells me that the more time we spend with Jesus, the more of himself he reveals to us. Oftentimes, we are in either three of these crowds. We are either in the crowd, we're on the outside, we're like, Jesus is cool. I'd wear a t-shirt, you know, that's fine. I'd, you know, be associated with that. I'm sort of a quasi-disciple. Then there's the 12 and the women, they're in the middle, and they're like, we're pretty tight with Jesus. He knows us, we know him. <coughs> or there's the three. And we often work our way in between all those different particular groups. But what I notice here is that Jesus, the disciples followed Jesus closely. They went where he went. The whole idea of being an apostle or an, a, um, a disciple is to be someone who apprentices with Jesus. And to do that, they go in where he went. If we notice that in the gospel accounts, we see Jesus' teachings, we see his miracles, and we see his invitations. Come follow me. And those are great, important moments that we cannot ever let go of. And they are necessary they show us who God is, what he's like, and what he asks of us. But there are a lot of unseen moments that the disciples had that are not recorded. You know, there's that old, that old adage that, that if you go and look at somebody's uh, gravestone and you have the day they were born, the day that they passed away, and there's a dash. And it's that dash is the life that we all live. And it's all the moments in between that. Well, the dash of being a disciple are all the things that they did with Jesus that aren't recorded. In John 20, it actually says that libraries could be filled with all the stories of Jesus if they were written down. John says, well, not, there are not enough books in the world that could have been written. 
But what we notice here is that the disciples follow Jesus closely in the mundane, in the dailiness of just being with him. Meals, walks, conversations, inappropriate jokes, saying stupid stuff, just being around each other. But I also notice here is the disciples became apprentices of Jesus more in those moments than on the mountaintops. The mountaintop experiences are important, and they're few and far between, but it's the valley stuff. It's the ways on the way down and the way up that are really important. Don't get me wrong. Those divine moments of being with Jesus are amazing, but they are not where most of our relationship with him is formed. It's within our dailiness, our daily prayers, and our quiet solitude, uh, in the turning of the cheek, the loving of our neighbor, the serving of those when you'd rather not. These are the dashes. These are the moments in which we are deepening our trust and our understanding of Jesus. Let those experiences of the mountaintop come, but endure the roads between. Follow Jesus closely. Secondly, I would say this, that the more they stuck with Jesus, the more Jesus revealed himself to him. And the more we, you and I, stick with Jesus, the more he opens himself up to us. I think of the times where I was when I was an 18-year-old kid and I received Christ for the, and I became a believer and a, a disciple. I think of where I was there to where I am now. It's a long road and it's a lifetime thing. And Jesus is more to me than he was back then. Back then he set me free from my sin and, and, and declared me righteous and loved me for who I was. And now that's even deeper and deeper and deeper. If you think back to the way uh, that you most related to Jesus in the beginning of our sermon here, uh, who you imagined to want him to be, Jesus wants to expand our understanding of him, to shock you in the same way that transfiguration shocked these three guys. But to bring you to your knees in adoration or to often to say, woe to me, I am a man or a woman of unclean lips. Go away from me, I'm a sinful person. But he wants us to our knowledge of him to be expanded in relationship. And he wants to tra- be transformed before your sight so you can see him clearly and experience his presence, the Father's love and the Spirit's guidance. It's this progressive revelation that we uh, uh, will get as we continue in relationship with him through the Spirit. And Jesus himself has sent the Spirit of God to dwell in in with us and to be with us always so that we have 24-7 access to God. And as we progress in our relationship with him, we learn more and more and more about him. Jesus is, you, you can't learn enough about him. You can't. He's like counting the sand of the, of, the, uh, of the beach. You go out there and it's just overwhelming. The last thing I'd say here, and I think it's important for us to recognize, is that our own failures, our missteps, our foot and mouth moments, they never disqualify us from being Jesus' disciples. Each one of us in here has had our moments where we've cursed God, where we've told him that he's been unfair, and we wish that we'd never known him. We've all had these moments where we've uh, thought we were on the right path and then we blew it and, and we expected Jesus to come and, and tell us, I'm sorry, uh, you're, you're bounced out of here. You've washed out of the Jesus Discipleship Program. Thank you and please take your early pay and go. That you, you don't get that. That never, ever happens. Jesus keeps picking us up, giving us strength for the next moment, for the next season. Truth. I'm going to fail this week. I'm going to fail in my walk with Jesus. Truth, you're going to fail 
You're going to have a misstep in your walk with Jesus this week. You're going to get to the place where you, you punch back rather than turn the other cheek. You're going to find yourself in a place where you don't want to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and you're not going to sprinkle sand on their driveway because, you know, they should have taken care of it on their own. Um, you know, of course, that's what people are saying to me about my driveway. But we're going to fail this week. As a disciples, you will say something uh, inappropriate or off-color. You will misrepresent Jesus, his mission, and his love. But the truth is, is that it does not get us kicked off of God's team. We are there by his grace and by his choice and by his purposes and by his power. We can't do anything to get ourselves kicked off his team. He just keeps pouring into us. He keeps tapping us on the shoulder and says, rise, let's go. Rise, let's go. The day is new. Rise. Let's go. If you notice in the story and in Matthew's account, like I said, Jesus gives the men strength, encourages them to rise and walk. God has great patience for us because he sees the end. He knows what we will become in him. And he just keeps pressing in. He keeps, he never gives up on us. He's the perfect parent. So what's our response to this today? This is where I struggled because when I was, Looking at the passage, I'm like, well, I don't know. There's, there isn't a command here. There isn't anything here that can say, um, be transfigured. I, I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. But here's what I think. Number one, seek Jesus, not the experiences. I had a lady, uh, uh, God bless her. Uh, she texted or not texted, but she uh, uh, emailed me and said, "Are you a church that practices deliverance?" And I went. Well, you're going to have to be a little more, uh, you know, forthcoming. What do you mean by deliverance? And so she, she explained that it was, and, and it's much more in a different sort of tradition that we don't practice here. Um, you know, and I, I've experienced in my life from being in those kind of churches and, uh, they're our brothers and sisters, no knock against them whatsoever. I say, but that's just not us because I don't see that we are supposed to be seeking those supernatural experiences as a norm. Rather, we are to be seeking the one who creates those experiences for us, and that's Jesus. And that our real deliverance comes from a lifelong journey and a lifelong pursuit of Jesus. So seek Jesus, not the experiences. That would be my first and foremost thing. And then secondly, I would do what Jesus' father told him to do. Listen to him. This is my son. Listen to him. He's got things to say. He knows things. Mountaintop experiences with Jesus are meant to be places where we stop, we look, and we listen to God. But it's not a place to build a monument or bottle it up for consumption or for selling. But rather, we are to listen to Jesus uh, in the pages of Scripture as we read it, listen to it, uh, and meditate on it. But we are meant to be in the, the down places where we really uh, seek Him and listen to Him as we go along. We need to listen to God in the pages of Scripture. We need to listen to Jesus talking to us in prayer, through the Spirit, in silence, in quiet places. Listen to Jesus. Listen to what he's saying about you. Listen to him say, I love you. You're my beloved. I love it when in my Hebrew class, we always say that this prayer that says, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. It's from the Song of Songs. It's wonderful. It's a prayer that I think we can actually say every day. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. And we're, God is simply saying to us, listen, I love you. I love you always and now and forever. And nothing can take you out of my hand. And when we do that, we receive his strength, his comfort, and his love. I think that's the best part about being a follower of Jesus is that I have someone who tells me I'm valuable and, worth, and loved when I fail. 
I love when we pray this prayer every Sunday. When we pray the Father or the the um, the Lord's Prayer, and it says, "I give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins." It's as if Jesus knows that we're going to need food and forgiveness every day, and that prayer is evidence that He's going to give us exactly that. He's like, "Ask me for this. Go ahead, just ask me for this. I'm, I'm going to give it to you. Ask me." The Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead lives within each one of you and is providing all the energy you needed to make it to the next day, to the next moment for that matter, some of us. We ought to be, when we, uh, we need to respond to this transfiguration of Jesus with open hands in prayer and receive all that he gives, especially his presence with you. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to think back on a, a time in your life when you've had a mountaintop experience with God, whether it be in a retreat, whether you were in your car and you had a, suddenly had a vision of God and you barely, you know, didn't swear off, swore, you know, um, swerve off the road or something along those lines. Each one of us has probably had a, a mountaintop experience with God. I want you to think about it this week. When was it? What was it like? How were you changed? What were the circumstances? And then think about the period of time that followed that. How did that experience of God that you had with him help you in the in-between times, in the dash? My encouragement to you this week is to spend some time journaling and spend time with God thinking and dwelling on that experience. Amen.